Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Daniel Lowry, and I'm joined today by Caleb Quay. This podcast is a podcast with the Santa Clarita Valley Underground as we attempt to catalyze gospel movements, creative expressions of the gospel in Santa Clarita, Los Angeles, and beyond. Today, we have a little bit of a special guest, not a little bit of a special guest, but a very special guest, um, which may take us a little bit in a different direction than talking about gospel movements, DBS, starting churches, things like that. We are joined by Caleb Quay, like I said. Caleb is a legendary guitarist who has played with some of the biggest names in music, the man who Eric Clapton once called the best guitar player in the world. Caleb's career began in the 1960s, where he formed a friendship with a young Reginald Dwight, who would later become known as Elton John. Caleb's guitar work can be heard on many of Elton John's early albums and material by John Baldry, Pete Townsend, P.P. Arnold, Steve Ellis, The Beach Boys, and Hall and & Oates. He is a songwriter and producer in his own right and is responsible for the psychedelic classic Baby Your Phrasing is Bad and a series of critically acclaimed albums with his band Hookfoot. His most current project is the critically acclaimed and award-winning documentary Louder Than Rock, the Caleb Quay story of rags to riches to rags to redemption. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, I uh, I am so honored to have you. I I you know you came and spoke at our church a number of years ago and uh, led worship for us. And just listening to your story, I I mean, I wanted to get baptized all over again. That's that's uh, like <laughs> great. Me too, Lord. Me too, Lord. So just uh, just an encouraging story, and and so much of the music you reference. You know, I remember listening to it while I was delivering pizzas for Domino's. You know, and I'm like, oh man, I met the guy who played that guitar riff. Like, just so cool. So, uh, I am so so excited to have you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, let's just jump in. Sound good? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So, tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from, your upbringing, family life, maybe some musical influences. Just you know, sure. give us the Caleb Quay story. Yeah. Okay. Well, where I'm from is I was born and raised in the UK, in England. London, England. The music gift in our family comes from my father. The name Quay is from West Africa, Ghana. In West Africa, that's where my family comes from on my father's side. So we're we're a you know we were global before global was popular. <laughs> you know, born shortly after the Second World War, and so on my mother's side it's it's uh, Barbados, Caribbean. And then we got some Irish and we got some Welsh in there. So it's like, you figure it out. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, yeah. and, we are um, the world is like, is yeah, your theme absolutely. song, right? We yeah. were that before, yeah. you know, before it was all, before the branding, you know, yeah. <laughs> it became a thing, you know. But my father was a well known jazz musician in England back in those days. So this is the 40s, 30s, and 40s. So jazz was a big musical influence. My father would get all these records and stuff from the, from the U.S., and uh, we would listen to this this music, you know. So for, for for me, growing up as a kid, you know, the program, he's only on a Sunday, 
Well, Sunday was church for us, but not so much going to a church, but listening to a whole lot of jazz music and, and eating good food and basically taking the day off. <laughs> that was church to us, you know. That sounds and pretty good, actually. Are you, it are was you, great. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. do not regret it at all. You know, yeah, if you pastor great. a church, I'm, I'm going to be there, Kayla. <laughs> <laughs> so we heard all, the, you know, we were the hippest, you know, family on the block, you know. And, uh, and of course, my father, you know, he worked with, you know, the greatest jazz musicians of that period. They were his friends. So, and they would come around to our house because my father was a good cook. So when they would come to England on tours, my father would work shows with them and then invite them over to the house to, to eat, you know. So we're talking people like, you know, Charlie Parker, Art Blakey, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, all of these people, the giants of, of that era, they came through our house. So I was, um, I had a very privileged upbringing in terms of being exposed to great music, you know, and uh, I just, as a little kid, you know, you know, four or five years old, I still remember sitting in the living room when these guys were having a jam session after we'd, you know, after we'd eaten dinner that my dad had cooked, you know, we'd go into what we call the living room where the piano was and drums and all kinds of stuff, you know, and um, listening to this incredible music when I was a child and just thinking to myself, oh, yeah, I want to do this. <laughs> you know, my, my, my friends on the street, you know, they, you know, back in those days, you know, it's like a young boy wanted to be like his father. So my friends in the street, they wanted to be like their fathers, you know, which would be soldiers, policemen, firemen, whatever, you know. And for me, it was like I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to be a musician, you know. And thank God I was born with a musical gift. I was born with, with good ears, you know. I was something of a prodigy. My dad taught me to play the piano when I was four years old. You know, I got kicked out of Sunday school in a church, in a local church, uh, when I was, yeah, five years old for playing boogie-woogie on the piano. When we were, the, the Sunday school teacher was late, and so the kids were getting all, all anxious and, you know, going crazy so i jumped on the piano and started <laughs> boogie woogie and she walks in and that was it the thunder the wrath of god fell from this woman who said quay get out of here you know and i thought oh my god what's happened so i had to walk back home so i had to tell my dad you know well they kicked me out of sunday school he says why because i was playing that boogie woogie that you taught me i was playing it on the piano oh so he dragged me all the way back to the church. We had to walk through this park, you know, to get to the church. And I just felt like if the ground could open up and swallow me up now, this would be a good thing, you know. And he went in there. He gave this woman the third degree in front of all the kids. And, you know, that was the last time I set foot in the church until I was 10 years old, till another five years later, until I was 10 years old. But, yeah, I always remember that. I actually took my family back to England in the year 2000, and we called it the Heritage Tour. So I took them all over London, took them where I grew up, and I took them to this, the, the church and walked them through the park and sat on the exact same seat where I remember sitting there thinking if the ground could just swallow me up now. I told them the whole story and showed them the place, 
it was a fabulous time. Yeah. But um, I know I went a little bit off track there, but these these memories are great things, you know, because in my experience, you know, God never forgets all these things. He never forgets these things, you know. And it's amazing, you know, and now I'm going a bunch of years forward to after I got saved, after all the, you know, 18 years of drugs and craziness, God re- renewed my mind and restored my memory of all these incredible incidents where he showed me how he was with me at that time. Yeah. So I'm a great believer in prevenient grace, that God was working when before we even had a clue. He had chose us and he's steering us. And it's like I always tell people, God orchestrates the journey that brings forth the testimony. You know, it's not about us, it's about him. So, you know, growing up, uh, you know, of course it was, you know, I was born in 1948. So in the 50s, you know, rock and roll, I was there when Bill Haley came over to England and caused a riot. So all that whole, you know, emergence of, of rock and roll and Elvis Presley and all of that. And then, of course, the Beatles in the early 60s. So the whole London music scene, the whole English music scene, I was very much a part of because I left school at age 14, 15. I dropped out of school and went straight into the music business. And it was when I was 15 is when I met Elton John, who back then his name was Reg Dwight. And we became friends and I just started working in Soho, the very seedy district of London where the music business was and got this job just delivering sheet music to companies, you know, and that's where I met Reg in uh, Denmark Street, which was the the publishing headquarters of, of the English music scene. And there were recording studios there and everything, you know. And in uh, 1965, I got a job. I was fortunate to land a job at a place called Dick James Music, which just happened to be the Beatles music publisher. So this was the biggest publishing company at that time on the face of the earth. I mean, they were publishing the Beatles. So I got there right when, um, in between the Beatles movie, Hard Day's Night, and they were getting ready to do uh, the next movie, Help. They filmed it and they were recording the music for it and getting it published. So that's when I I got slotted in there. It was an amazing situation because by then, the whole music scene was exploding just incredibly. In, in London, and I was this young musician, and I was blessed with the opportunity to learn my craft as a musician, a studio engineer, a producer, all of that stuff at Dick James's studios. They were, they were started out as a publishing company. They got very successful, obviously, with the Beatles and other artists that Brian Epstein was managing at that time. So I used to record a lot of their demos in the studio, and it got to a point where Dick James' son, Stephen, he was running the studio, but he was not going to be doing that all the time. He was being groomed to eventually take over the company, you know, the publishing empire, you know, for his father. And so uh, I was just, I was the guy that was in and out of the studio asking questions and helping out playing on tracks and stuff. And so Dick saw that I had talent and he signed me up as an artist and everything. And in a short space of time, 
at the end of 65, he handed the studio over to me to run it. You know, I was 16, 17 years old. By 17 years old, I was the A&R guy for, wow. for this. The, I mean, un- yeah. you, you can't even script it, you know. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I was this young guy, you know, having to sift through hundreds of tapes from songwriters. People are banging on the door. Could you please let me record my song, you know, and so I'm auditioning people. And, oh, gosh, so that went through 1966. I was busy doing all kinds of sessions and just carving out this incredible career for myself under the auspices of Dick James Music, you know, and uh, the British invasion started over here. You know, the Beatles started, but there was this flood of of, uh, English artists came over. One of them was a band called The Trokes, who did a song called Wild Thing, and they had a few other songs as well and they hit it big over here well i was playing on those records Uh, 16 year old 17 year old kid you know playing on those records you know and so my career you know my studio career took off you know so i'm i've worked in all the studios in london in the midst of this whole explosive scene it was it was really an amazing time you know and of course during that time i met a guy a, a young mick jagger of the rolling stones you know, and uh, he was producing uh, a gal by the name of P.P. Arnold. So this was in 1966, and I was around 16 years old, and Mick was the guy that turned me on to, to drugs during that whole thing, you know. So I thought, well, if this is what the big boys are doing, then count me in, I'm in, you know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> peer pressure, I mean, just unbelievable, you know. You want to make it, this is what you do. It hasn't changed in years. You know, it, it's the same thing today, you know. So that started that that journey, and all the time I'm getting more and more successful. And it's interesting. I, I ran away from the church when I was 15 years old. My voice has started to change everything. But also there was a situation, one of the reasons I ran away from the church is because I used to sing in the church choir. I was head choir boy in the church, in our local church choir. And um, this is a, what you call an Anglican church, Church of England over there. And periodically they would do these um, confirmation services, is what it was called. So people that were going to be confirmed, you know, that walk in, you know, in their robes and the priest would lay his hands on them, you know. So I'm singing in the choir while we're doing this, this service. And I see one of my friends is in the line to be confirmed. And I see, I watch him come down, you know. And as I'm singing, I'm thinking to myself, boy, I'd like to do that. Whatever that, whatever that is, I, I'd like to have that. You know, it was just like this holy moment. You know, they walk down and they get blessed by the priest and then walk off, you know. I thought, man, I'd like to do that. But I knew that the, the rules in the church were... At that time, in order to be confirmed, you had to be baptized. And to be honest, I didn't know if I'd been baptized or not. So I went home. When I went home after that church service, I asked my mother, because my dad had split when we were when I was 12 years old. And I asked my mother, I said, hey, mom, I said, I've got a question for you. I said, uh, have I ever been baptized? And my, my dear mother, her face just dropped. And she shook her head and said, no, you haven't. Why not? She said, your father never had time. 
Now, the deal was back in those days, it was the father had to initiate the whole thing. Uh, Make the appointment with the church, sign the papers, whatever. It was the the father's job to initiate. My dad was on the road with his bands, touring. He was a touring musician. You know, he he didn't have time. He He didn't have time for church or anything. So my heart just dropped and I felt like, and I knew it, this is like where the enemy gets in there, you know. All of a sudden, I felt like the biggest hypocrite in the world. I said, I'm done with church. I can't do this anymore. And so literally, it was on that basis, I left the church and headed straight for Soho in the music business, 15 years old. Quit school and everything. Wow. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm sorry yeah, to on. hear that. Yeah, That's awful. Yeah, you know, but yeah, it but, happens. Yeah. That's what happens, you know. But you know, God knows all these things. So years later, when I became a Christian and I got baptized, God, I mean, I had this massive radical deliverance when I got baptized at age 33. So God has a way of, you know, picking it up on the back end. Yeah, he doesn't forget, right? He don't forget a thing. He doesn't forget a thing, you know. It's about the heart. You know, he knew I was searching for answers, you know, but when this hit, that was like, you know, and even during, during my years of doing drugs and, and, you know, crazy rock and rolls and being, being a full-blown hippie during that time, you know, hippie musician, I was still searching. I was searching, just searching in the wrong places, which is what the enemy has us do. But God knows. He knows the heart. So when I got baptized, I mean, man... I got instantly, I went in the water, a total mess, and came up brand new, brand new mind. You know, I didn't have to go to, you know, 12-step or anything else. I was radically cleaned out, filled with the Spirit, the whole, the whole thing, the whole nine yards. Yeah, that is a, that's a beautiful story. Yeah, I, I know I've gone all over no, the place. No, no, but no, this, no, which I'm good. just going with the wind right now. Yeah, as the Holy Spirit leads, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So you know, you're in the '60s rock scene. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not a. I don't pretend in any way to be a music historian or anything like that. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I mean, that was a special time in music. I, I don't know that it's that there's been another time like that. Maybe little pockets with the grunge era, you know, little things like that. But just yeah. that that kind of revolution and, and the music that came out of that, yeah. like I. Personally, I don't think anything better has come since then. You know, it's and, and a lot of people copying that. What what was that like to be a part of that? What was it? I, I mean, what was your experience playing oh. with Elton John? Like, uh, what was that all about? Yeah, it was exciting. It was exciting. I mean, you know, Elton and I we had a friendship that was totally based on love of the same kinds of music. We spent all our money listening to music. You know, the years, I often tell people, from 1965 to 1970, were most probably, you're looking at a five-year window of incredible explosion in creativity that was also set with new discoveries in science and physics, such as going to the moon the moon rate and bringing back stuff that would then be filtered down into the technology that we have today. So for instance, the, all this, the recording arts and science, uh, sciences. So up until 1965, 
four-track recording was state-of-the-art. That was as high as you could go. But then the moon race started, you know, science started developing, you know, at making strides. And then all of a sudden, an eight-track recorder comes out. Whoa, what in the world is this? Four more tracks, which to, in today's language sounds totally archaic. I mean, we're talking over 50 years ago. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> but um, it was revolutionary. It was absolutely revolutionary. You know, four-track recording came into being as a result of Bing Crosby discovering uh, a tape machine that was brought over from work from Germany after World War II because the Nazis had been developing all this stuff. And he gave this tape machine to Les Paul. And Les Paul, this was just a two-track tape machine, but Les Paul started, the, he invented overdubbing, multi-track recording, bouncing from one track to another, etc. You know, that's where it all starts. You know, that was after World War II. The 60s come along and science has evolved and then all of a sudden it's gone from two-track to four-track. And that, that's what we had at Dick James Music, EMI, or everybody. That was, that was state-of-the-art, you know. And uh, people used to come to me, I'd record their demos on two-track. And then they would say, hey, we just got signed to EMI. We're going to go, we're, they're going to let us in the studio. We're going to record four-track. And it was like they'd gone to the moon. It was like they couldn't believe we can actually record four-track. So that was state-of-the-art. But then from 65 onwards, it went quickly went from 8-track to 16-track, you know, and I used to go sit in on some of these sessions where they would demonstrate these new machines for the first time in England. And all the top producers and engineers, George Martin, all these people, I was sitting there and uh, one of the studios was a famous studio called Olympic Studios where the Stones used to record there, Hendrix used to record there, Cream used to record there. Big studio, great place, you know. And Keith Grant, he was the owner of the uh, of the place. He invited me down. He says, you've got to come down here. We're demoing the new 16-track student machine. Oh, okay, great. I'll go down there. Well, we sat there, and Keith, he's pressing, these, he's playing this tape, and he says, listen to the drums. Now you could spread the drums across, you know. And we're all sitting in there watching it, and as, as the sound is panning, we're all doing this left to right, right to left, you know. We all thought we'd died and gone to heaven. All of a sudden, all these new possibilities for recording, you know, and vocals, you could split the harmonies over here and everything, was all now available to us. You know, all this happened in five years. You know, there'll never be another another explosion like that. It's like from, from zero to, you know, what's it? What's that cartoon? Zero to infinity. <laughs> infinity and beyond, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it, that's yeah. what it was like. Yeah. You know, that's what it was like. You know, there was there was no warm up to it. It was like all of a sudden it's here. You can do this now. You know, so this was part of this was all going on during that five year period. You know, and I was this young kid, just like a kid in a candy store, just having this, being blessed with this incredible opportunity to exercise my creativity, and which is a God given gift. And I think. What people might not know is that you, you're, you're in this time, there's all this creativity. You become, to my understanding, kind of the band leader for Elton John. Yeah. But 
it sounds to me from your story like that's because you've had three, four, five years of recording and learning the industry. Yeah. And then oh, yeah. you were there when the when the 16 track, the revolution. And yep. so yes, Elton John is the creative genius, but yeah. from listening to your story, you're kind of the guy that took that creative genius and and like made something out of it. Is that is that fair to say? Well, it is, yeah, because when he, when he came, so this guy called Ray Williams brought him over to Dick James' studio in 1967, early 1967, to, to audition for the company. Well, I was the guy that ran the audition. He had to audition for me, and it's kind of a funny story because I hadn't seen him for about a year. So he put a band together, Bluesology, and they'd been out touring. And so he'd lost some weight and grew his hair long and everything. He was looking all hip, you know. So I, for a minute, I didn't recognize him, you know. And I'm setting up the studio, setting up, my, it was just a piano and voice demo, you know. So I'm setting up microphones in the studio, and he's leaning over the piano, kind of covering his face with his hand, you know, thinking, oh, it's him, it's him, you know. And I suddenly turned, I said, wait a minute, don't I know you? Oh, it's Rich. Yeah, okay. So that's where we met again after a year, you know. And so he had to actually audition for me because I was the A&R guy for the company. It was hilarious, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, 17 years old at the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> that part of the story I did Wait, not know. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. It's, in, yeah. it's in the movie. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, it's crazy. So I had to, you know, yeah, I had to help it because I had, by that time, I'd had studio experience and he had relatively very, very little. I think he'd done one record, but, he, you know, producing is not his, it was never his thing. Still not his thing. But he has his talent and that's it, you know, but it, it's, you know, he needs others. So I had to, you know, help out there, you know. And it was fun to do. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a partnership. It was a friendship. It was a creative thing you know and it was a lot of fun couldn't wait to get in the studio he'd call me up and say hey bernie and i've written a song when can we get in the studio okay let me let me book some time let's do it you know and it was just fun yeah and so from there you joined the band i i, I imagine as as one of the musicians and then you go on tour and so you're you're one of the bands of that kind of '60s rock revolution. Yeah. What what is it like? Yeah, like what is that like? I mean, that's every little boy's dream with a guitar, isn't it? Like go on tour and yeah. be part of the band and you know play play Wembley Stadium and you know that like oh that was yeah, yeah. like that, those things were yeah you you've lived the life so we've all dreamed of <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 it was surreal. It was by that time he'd made it. So now you're talking seventy uh, seventy five. Uh, that's when he called me back into the band. He wanted a bigger band. So I had a band called Hookfoot, which was also signed to DJM. We weren't commercially successful, but we were very influential. So producers used to book book us to be rhythm section on a thing. So we were known as a musician's band. A lot of musicians would come and, and watch us play because we were a bit ahead of our time and uh, good, just great musicianship. And so by 75, when Elton changed his band from the, the original trio and then the quartet that he had, he bought in Roger Pope, who was the drummer for Hookfoot, and myself. He wanted us two in there because we'd played on the early, the early records. And he wanted that. And he wanted, you know, he wanted it to groove a bit more. 
and he brought in Kenny Passeroni from Joe Walsh's band, and the three of us became one very, very tight rhythm section. So this is when Elton was now suddenly really, you know, the biggest thing out there. So it was all stadiums, and that was very exciting. A combination of very exciting and very crazy and very surreal all at the same time. <laughs> it was about as far removed from normal as you can imagine. I, I, mean, I can't imagine, yeah. No, you can't. You know, limousines here and there, you know, mammoth shows. We would do four-hour shows with a 20-minute intermission in there. And then, you know, four or five encores at the end. I mean, to th- it was just mammoth stuff, you know. And literally thousands of people just losing their minds. Yeah, and so you you you're part of this, and and you're you're yeah. really living the life that oh yeah that that people are dreaming of. Like you're you're not oh yeah you're not just this musician that they play come in. Like you're you're part of the creative right. process. Like th- this is yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. this is mm-hmm. this is what I'm producing. Where, where did it lead you? I mean, I'm kind of kind of leading you know the horse to water here, so to speak, but. You kind of come to a point where, like, I think in one um, in in the movie you talk about, you just started to spiral down, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So, where did that take you? Boy, it's hard to describe. Really, it. I I remember, you know, people would say, "Wow, Caleb, you've really made it now. You've really made it." And inside, I felt like I hadn't made anything. I just had this empty hole. And it's a combination of things because um, in order to be, I think anybody would pretty much agree with this, in order to be successful, you have to be driven. You know, people, that, people who are at the top of their game, whether it's music, business, whatever, whatever it is, athletics, whatever, they're driven. I was driven. Question is, what was I driven by? I was driven by this hatred toward my father who had caused so much damage to our family and it basically, for me, he, well, he abandoned us when I was 12 years old. So at the very age when I really needed a father, he split. He left. And that was what, it was hatred. Toward, it was In me, it was like, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to be one of the best musicians in the world. That was what was driving me. And so that leads to a deep, dark hole. So it's funny. When you said we live in the life that most people dream, dream about, you know, the sex, drugs, rock and roll, and all that kind of stuff, it's really not a life. It's really a means of trying to escape. That's what it is. You, You drink to, you know, you know, you got you got hundreds of people banging on your dressing room door. They want a piece of you. You got to escape from this in some way. So you drink, you get high, or whatever. And all of those things really are a means of trying to escape this pressure of being basically worshipped in some way. I remember one time, just a little sidetrack. A pastor by the name of Ralph Moore. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was a great church planter in Hawaii. I, and, I know uh, Ralph. He invited, yes. He's actually you know Ralph? Okay. He's actually my next podcast interview. So that's that's oh. really cool. Yes, yes. Tell him I said I will, hi. I will. Oh yeah. Yes. I haven't seen him in a while. That's great. Yeah. yeah. But so so back in oh, this was late nineties. 
And he invited me over to speak at his church in Hawaii. So I go, I go over there, and this is how he introduces me. It's, it's, ah, he says, uh, we have a guest speaker today. He says, his name's Caleb Quay, you know. He says, and he knows what it's like to be worshipped. <laughs> yeah. I thought, how do you follow that in a church? What in the world? Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, he was great. Yeah. Oh, please, please give him my love. Tell him I said hi. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that is but, something that um, not too many people and experience. That's a pressure. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're screaming at you. You know, if you break a string, they don't know and they don't care. It, you know, they want a piece of you. So that whole thing is just absolute. It looks glamorous from the outside. But it, it really is an unbearable pressure. It, it's just like it drives you to places that, you know, you wouldn't even think of. You know, you just have to get away. So that's the best way I can describe it, you know. And, and nothing, you know, the drugs were not fun anymore. It was just something that you did in order to, to somehow escape, you know. The best times were really the times where we're on stage actually playing the music. That's like, I felt safe then. That's, you know, somewhat untouchable, even though they're screaming and doing all that, you know, but when we're actually playing the music, that's like, that's our space. That's like, okay, we're good here. This is fine here, you know. But the moment you come off stage, it's like, it's circus time. You know? Yeah. Crazy. Tell me about the voice. You referenced yeah. the voice uh, in, your, in your documentary. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. Okay, so that's in... That would be 1978 on my 30th birthday in October, 1978. At that time, I was now working with Hall & Oates. It's funny, who are now currently in the news because they're suing each other. I just saw that yesterday. I thought it was so funny. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to talk to Caleb about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yes, the egos are at work. Egos and money are at work there, play there. So... um yeah, I was working with Hall & Oates, so, you know, very well known and, you know, doing great out there. But by this time, <clears throat> I had a lot of questions about everything. You know, I was just just kind of like permanently unhappy. Still successful, but in internally it's like, ah, there's got to be something, you know. I was always, you know, we're just searching for answers, I guess is the best way I can describe it. And so we did this gig, the show in Atlanta uh, at the uh, Omni Theater, and adjacent to it is the Omni Hotel. And so after we did the show, we went back to the hotel, checked in there for the night, and um, the band decided to throw a surprise birthday party for me. So they came barging into my room with this huge birthday cake on a on a on a trolley. You know, and the birthday cake was piled up on the top with drugs and or it was a very illegal birthday cake, let me put it that way. And so they come they pile this thing into my room. So we were partying away in my in my room. And about oh gosh, I don't know, about three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, they crawled out of my room and I'm just left there alone in my room. And so I was sat on this chair, I still have it the ninth floor. The Omni Hotel. I back to the window, had a nice suite, you know, and I just sat there 
And I was actually thought, well, let me smoke a joint and try and calm down. So I did, you know, I'm puffing away on this thing. And all of a sudden, man, all of a sudden, I hear this voice speaks to me. Now, this voice was so loud, I thought somebody had walked back into my room. And I, I looked behind me because the hallway was down there. And, and I so I looked behind and uh, looked down the hallway. There was nobody there. And this voice very clearly said to me, called me by my name, and said, Caleb, from this point on, your life is going to be completely different and nothing's going to be the same for you ever again. And I sat there in the midst of what I can only describe as an electric silence. And in my limited understanding, all I knew was that I had been spoken to. I just did not know by whom. So I sat there in that chair on that night and I made a little promise to myself. I said, one day I'm going to find out who that voice belonged to. So then the next morning we, we you know, pack up and hit the road, you know. We're in the middle of a six-month tour. And uh, word had gone out in the industry that Caleb had just turned 30. Now, in rock and roll, 30 is not a good age. You're supposed to be dead by 30. <laughs> so I would, bump into, I would bump into other musicians. You know, I remember bumping into Brian May of Queen, a guitar player with Queen, and bumped into him at Chicago Airport. They were, they were on tour at the same time. Hey, man, how you doing? Great, good to see you, you know. And uh, Brian said to me, I hear you just turned 30. What happened? Like, as if I'm supposed to suddenly, you know, keel over at that point. Yeah, like you, you know? did something about it, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so I told him the story I just told you, word for word. I told him the story. And the response was kind of interesting. He says, wow, that's uh, really far out. He says, uh, who, what were you smoking? And where can we get some? You know, and I'm going, no, this was a real deal. This really, this was a conversation I had with many musicians, many friends around that time. You know, they'd heard I turned 30. And I tell them the story, you know, and, uh, and it was like, no, this is different. This was, this was a real voice. You know, I couldn't shake it, you know. And that's what I tell people is, you know, once, once God speaks to you, you can try how to run and hide but you can't shake it. You cannot unhear it. You know, this is the voice of him who spoke creation into being. He's talking to you. And um, it's funny, I've shared, I've shared my story, I've shared this part of my story in churches, and people have a tough time. I'm talking Christians now. They have a tough time getting their head around it. I've had Christians saying, oh, does God really speak like that? You know, why are you so special? I said, I'm not special at all. He just chose to speak to me in that way and get my attention in that way. And, you know, I think we need to take seriously in the church, you know, the fact that God does speak. He's still speaking to people in all kinds of ways. It can be an audible voice. It can be a dream, a vision, an impression. But in all kinds of ways, he speaks, you know, so for me, I think maybe because I'm a musician and hearing is a big thing for me, he decided to let me hear his voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's funny you mentioned you mentioned this because this morning actually I um, 
I do a thing called Lexio 365. It's an app and they do it. And today's mm-hmm. story was um, Samuel hearing the voice of God. And then he goes to Eli, right? Go. And he says, yep. who is there that voice? Go. Who is that voice? So you're having something of a Samuel experience. Yeah. And then I find it so funny how, you know, thousands of years later, the church looks like, no, 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 that's not, you know, that's not how it works, right? Yeah. You're on yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the deal. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. He can break through whatever, you know, whatever the world throws at us, he has the ability to just break through and reveal himself, you know, in a way that he knows we are going to receive it. That's beautiful. So where do you go from there? So you talk to Brian May, he's trying to get some drugs out of yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> where do you go? <laughs> yeah. So from there, uh, the, that tour finished at the end of 78, that band broke up. I came home here to Los Angeles and that's where everything really fell apart. You know, my marriage, for, for my first marriage fell apart. I used to have uh, a pretty healthy studio career session work going on over here and producers would call, you know, and there was like a booking service, you know, a lot of our studio musicians we used to have a, a booking service where you pay a fee and an operator would take your calls and then let you know, yeah, you, they need you over at Sunset Sound Studios, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden the phone's not going anymore and it was like I no longer had control over my life. The drug habit was getting worse and it was all very, very, very shaky. And then during that period of time, let me see, it would be actually in 1980, I met this wonderful person, Chester Thompson, who was the drummer for Genesis and Phil Collins and uh, just a terrific musician, also played prior to that with a very influential jazz group called Weather Report. Tremendous musician. And he invited me to join his band. He put together this little jazz group uh, that was playing locally, and I thought, wow, that'd be great. I'd love to play with this guy. So he had a little studio in his house, and so we would go rehearse, at his, at his house and then go do these gigs down at uh, Malibu Beach. And he used to tell me that him and his wife were Christians and that they went to church. And that was it. You know, that was as far as he got. He dev- never preached, didn't, none of that at all, you know. And I used to think to myself, this guy and his wife, they're different. And I couldn't get my head around it because Chester and I are actually the same age. I'm, I'm actually a month older than him. And we're in the same line of work. We'd had similar experiences, big tours and stuff like that. But he wasn't crazy like everybody else. Wasn't doing drugs. Very at peace, very centered, very feet on the ground, very focused. And I used to think to myself, this guy, he's got something. I didn't, never said it to him, but this is what I used to think to myself. There's something different about this guy. He's got something, and whatever it is, I want it. I need it. And so we just became good friends. Now, here's, here's the great thing, the funny thing, is that uh, we joke about it still to this day, 42 years later. And his wife would cook this meal called an African stew, just this great, great food. So the way it worked is 
I'd be at his house with the, with the band. We'd be rehearsing all day. Then at the end of the day, she'd say, why don't you stay behind and, and have some of this stew? So I was like, okay, great. So she'd cook up this stew, lay it down on the table. There would just be the three of us at the table. And I, would, I was so hungry, I'd be wolfing down this, this stew. And she would wait for me. The second I put my knife and fork down, she would ask me a question. She would say, well, Caleb, why don't you go ahead and just tell us just exactly what do you believe? Okay, logical question. So I would launch off into this like 40-minute monologue of complete rubbish. (laughs) It, It started off, it would start off with like Star Trek and, you know, morph its way into astrology you know, Eastern religion, gurus and stuff like that, and it would kind of wind its way down into this age-old defense for doing drugs. And it was like this. I would say, well, well, man, you know what it's like, man. I said, you know, potatoes and vegetables, they grow out of the ground, right? And marijuana grows out of the same ground. So surely that's okay with God too, right? And my friend Chester would sit over the other side of the table in his T-shirt with his arms folded, just very patiently, and all he would say was, yeah, man, I know what you mean, man. You just need Jesus. And when he said that, inside, I was absolutely infuriated. I was just, I'm thinking, who is this guy? I've spent like 40 minutes trying to explain myself, and that's all you can come out with, you know? (laughs) And the worst thing was that I had to go home to my place and try and get a good night's sleep because we were going to rehearse the next day. I would go home, lay on my bed, and there ain't no sleep happening. All I've got is his four words, you just need Jesus. And those words were ringing around, rattling around inside of me like ball bearings in a tin can. I got no sleep at all. And then I would you know, have to go back the next day and rehearse. And the same thing happened over again. So you ever seen the movie Groundhog? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This conversation that I had with him, with his wife and everything, with the African stew, it repeated itself every day for a week. Wow. Go to Chester's, rehearse, eat the stew, she asked the question, hit the monologue, yeah, you just need Jesus, go home, lay on the bed, no sleep. Go back the next day. I mean, crazy. Absolutely crazy. Well, you were the, the dumb one that kept week. going back, man. I mean. <laughs> I enjoyed the music. I mean, it was cra- It was this total God setup, you know, because all that time, he never opened the Bible. There was no quoting of scripture. He didn't talk any, G- any, any Christianese to me, none of that at all. He was just my musician friend. They were just loving on me the only way they knew. To this day, we, we joke about the stew. We call it the anointed African stew. Because <laughs> at the end of that at the end of that week, he calls me up on Sunday morning. He says, hey, man, how you doing? I said, I'm not doing too good. I could really use a good night's sleep. I said, I'm a mess. You know, he says, it's Easter. It was Easter Sunday, 1982. He says, why don't you come with church? Come to church with us today. So I'm on the phone, and it was like the world stopped. I'm on the phone, and I thought to myself, 
well, I've tried everything else. Why not church? I said, okay, I'll come to church with you, you know. And I can hear him on the other end of the phone with his wife going, Jess, he's coming, you know. He said, great, we'll, we'll, me and my wife, we'll pick you up. We'll take you to the church. That's when he took me to the church on the way, Easter Day, 1982. I go in the church, and first of all, I didn't even think it was a church because everybody was happy. They were all smiling, you know, doing the fellowship thing. I thought, well, this can't be a church. These people are happy. I go in there. They start the worship time. And, of course, by this time, they're doing what we would call choruses. They're not, they're, you know, I was raised with the old hymns and stuff, you know. And they start singing this very simple chorus. It's called, In My Life, Lord, Be Glorified, Be Glorified Today. And, uh, and it's just very simple. It just keeps repeating itself, you know. And I'm sitting there, and the musician inside of me is like analyzing the music. You know, so look, this is nice, pretty tune, nice chords, you know. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this song, the same voice that spoke to me in the hotel room on my 30th birthday, three and a half years before, speaks to me right there in the midst of this song and says, Caleb, it's time for you to come home to me today because I have a brand new life for you. Then the light bulb went on. Then I knew who that voice belonged to. I knew that was Jesus. And in that song, it, it says, in my life will be glorified, be glorified today. Today was the only word I heard in that song. It was like that word just jumped out, and that was the word of God to me, come home to me today because I have a new life for you. As the Jack Hayford gets up, starts preaching his Easter message and I'm sitting there watching this man in a brown suit and it seemed like he was telling my story to everybody. I'm thinking, who is this guy that seems to know everything about me? Because, you know, when you think about it, obviously he's he's tearing into the Easter message. Well, the Easter message is for everybody. Yeah. He's on the heels of Christ having died for our sins and then being raised from the dead, you know. It's this a message for everybody. And I'm sitting there, who is this guy that seems to know everything about me? You know. And when he gave the invitation at the end, my hand shot up in the air. I shot up out of my seat. I'm standing with my hand up in the air. And I just raced toward the front to get to get some prayer. So that was when I said yes to Jesus. Yes to the voice that spoke to me in the hotel room that I'd made a promise to myself that one day I was going to find out who that voice belonged to. That's how that happened. Now, you may want to ask the question, how did I get delivered from 18 years of drugs? Because I was still a drug addict when I said yes. I was messed up, but I heard that voice. I recognized that voice, you know. So there's two days, two days in the calendar year that are very important to me. One is Easter, which is when I said yes, and the other one is Pentecost Sunday. Is, which is the day I got baptized. You know, Chester had left town, gone out with Genesis, you know. I didn't own a Bible. I just went home and back to dealing drugs and everything else, you know, and had forgotten about what had happened at church. And one day I got seriously sick. Thought I actually thought I was going to die. I was laid on a bed, which should have been my deathbed. My nervous system gave out. And uh, I lost my eyesight. I was laying on a bed. This is a springtime California day. The window is open. And all of a sudden, everything is just jet black. I couldn't see a thing. 
I felt myself being dragged down some dark hole and at the end of it I can see flames. I knew it was hell and I knew I didn't want to go there so I started to cry out to God. Uh, And I always encourage people, God loves crazy prayers. They don't have to be long, they just have to be radical. And I just cried out to God and I said, God, I said, if you would just help me turn this page in my book and give me Jesus, I will give you the rest of my life. And at that moment, the same voice I'd heard in the hotel, the same voice I'd heard on Easter Sunday in church, speaks to me right there on that bed that should have been my deathbed and says to me, Caleb, go get yourself baptized today. Oh, oh, okay. Then I thought, how do I do that? I thought, let me call Chester. Ah, Chester was the only person I knew. (laughs) I called Chester. He picks up the phone. It just so happened he'd gotten back into town the night before off the road with Genesis. He says, hey, man, good to hear from you. How are you doing? I said, man, I said, I'm a mess right now. I'm wondering if you can help me. I said, all I know is I need to get myself baptized today. He says, can you help me? He said, wow. He says, do you know what day it is today? I said, I don't. I think it's Sunday. He says, it's Pentecost. I said, what is that? (laughs) Chester starts, here I am a mess, right, on the phone. Chester starts trying to give me a Bible teaching down the phone. You know, the birth of the church, Pentecost Sunday, and all this, you know. I said, well, I said, it sounds good. I said, but all I know is, man, I just need to get my body in the water today. Can you help me? He says, yes. He says, you know what? They're having um, baptisms um, uh, this afternoon at the church. So me and my wife will come and pick you up. They're having an evening service. They're doing baptisms. Great. Okay. So he picks me up, takes me to the church, him and his wife. I sit in this class and they, you know, teach you about the, the you know, what's going to happen, you know. And he says to me, I'll never forget, he says, and it was like a throwaway. The pastor said, as we were walking out at the end of the class, he says, oh, by the way, if you're interested in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just see one of the elders and they'll take care of it for you. So, okay, great. So I go get dressed, put on my white robe. You know, we stand there with 13 of us getting baptized that day. And I'm at the end of the line. And they start the service, you know, and um, this worship going on, this guy playing, playing the organ. Pastor Jack comes out onto the platform. He stops the worship. And he says, and I'm still behind a curtain, so I couldn't see him, but I hear him say, Church, today is Pentecost, and I believe the Lord would have us all sing in the Spirit. Now, I did not know what in the world he's talking about. So then the organ starts playing again, and then the church, there's about 1,500 people in the church. They start singing in the, in the Spirit, in their spiritual language, you know. And I'm standing at the end of the line, and I'm kind of getting a little irritated with this because I'm thinking, what in the world are these people doing singing in French, Greek, and Spanish all at the same time? And at that point, my friend, at that point, the same voice that I'd heard in the hotel room, that I'd heard on Easter Sunday, that I'd heard that morning telling me to get baptized, speaks to me right there and says, you're a musician, 
I want you to come up here and hear this. Now, my body was standing at the end of this row, but my spirit and everything else just shot up and left this realm, left this place. I'm no longer hearing the organ and the people in the church singing in the spirit and trying to find the right note and all that kind of stuff. I am hearing the ultimate perfection in music and worship that's going on right now as we are talking around the throne of God. I heard it. It was devastating in its perfection. I thought I'd left this earth for about three days or something. And when it finally started to wind down, I could see people at the front of the line starting to, you know, tiptoe down into the waters, into the, into the water to get baptized. And I just shouted at the guy standing next to me and I said, somebody better get me in that water quick because I can't stand this anymore. And I just pushed my way through to the front and dived in. Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. One of the pastors grabbed me by the throat, you know, held me under till I was bubbling or something, you know, and pulled me up, you know. But here's the thing. I went into that water, an 18-year drug addict with a messed up mind. When I was pulled up out of that water, I had a brand new mind. I had a brand new mind, and I had a revelation as well that has never left me to this day. And here's the revelation. It's very simple. God knew me and had accepted me as one of his own. It's a book of Ephesians. That's, that's the bedrock of my faith. That was it. I came out of there totally brand new, and as I mentioned before, I never had to do any 12-step. I was qualified for 48 steps. You know what I mean? I, I never had to do any of that. You know, I couldn't. I, I, the first thing I did was went and bought a Bible, and I couldn't get enough of the Word of God. I just, it, it just sank myself into the Word of God. I attended every service. You know, they talk about spiritual formation. My spiritual formation, you know, was a two-year adventure at the Church on the Way of attending every service with a notebook, sitting as close to the front of the, as I could to hear every word that Pastor Jack had to say, then run back across the street to my apartment and check it out with the Bible and just carry on from there. You know, when I came out of the water, there's a lot more to this story in terms of radical deliverance, but and I'll let you do the editing or whatever, but <laughs> you know, when I when I came out of the water, you know, they give you a towel to to dry off, you know. So I'm patting myself down with this towel and I'm tapping myself on the side of my stomach here. I couldn't see anything, but I could feel my hand going through an invisible hole in my side. And I would instinctively Look back to the water, and I knew that something had been taken out of me and it was left drowning in the water. It was a demonic deliverance. This hole in the side of my body remained there for a week, and I would feel it every morning in the shower, and every day it would shrink a little bit and shrink a little bit, shrink a little, and after a week it was completely gone. It was a radical deliverance, my friend. It was, you know. I don't get to share this often, but I've I've just taken it upon myself. I just turned 75 years old. I don't know how much longer God has me on this earth, but as long as he does have me on this, on this earth, I'm going to share these radical aspects of, of how I got saved. 
you know, because sometimes people just don't want to hear it. They just they just look at me like I'm crazy, you know. But, you know, it's the Holy Spirit, you know, he's still here, he's still being poured out, if only we take notice, you know. And it's just amazing. Here's something. I, just today, I got a text today. There's this gal on the ink on the East Coast, and in fact, after we've done this interview, I'm going to call her. She came to faith in Jesus after reading my book, and I think she's seen the movie, but I know she's read my book. She came to faith, comes from a background of abuse and everything. Today, this morning, she was in the shower and got baptized in the Holy Spirit in the shower. She, the Spirit of God just fell upon her. We have a mutual friend. He told me about it, and I'm going to call her just to say amen and congratulations. But this is, you know, this is God. This is what this is what He does. You know, sometimes we think we have to go through some kind of systematic, analytical kind of system. You know, no, Jesus. This, you know, Jesus talks about this baptism with the Spirit being the gift of the Father. Luke 11. He talks about if you you earthly fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them asking? You know, so it, it's he, he's looking at the heart. If the heart is receptive, is open to what he has, he's going to pour it out, and that's what he's in the business of doing. You know, I love it, and so um, that's how I got set free from drugs. You know, I've preached in prisons and all kinds of crazy places, you know, just sharing this message of the the reality of God. I'm a church guy. I love the church. But you know what I don't like about the church is, is the way it's misrepresented Jesus over the years. They've done a bad job of misrepresenting, of representing Jesus. They've put forth a system, et cetera, et cetera. But uh-uh, no, Jesus is way, way bigger than the institution. And he's given us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is still being poured out on upon all flesh. As this gal Amen. just testified to me this morning, you know. So I hope that is is encourages encourages your audience, you know. Yeah, no, I was gonna like you're you're like preach it, brother. Like you're like I'm I'm with you all the way. <laughs> you know, we are coming up on our time, Caleb. I, like I mentioned when we started, I, I wanted to be respectful. I may get to talk to you all day, you know, but I want to be respectful yep. of your time and stuff. There were a couple of topics, you know, I wanted to hit, but um, just seems like, yep. as you said earlier, you know, following where the wind goes, right? I just want to ask you to give an encouragement before we go uh, and give a blessing. A number of the people that listen to this podcast are doing a lot of out-of-the-box pipe ministry, you know? They're engaging people in the Omni Hotel that aren't in the church that will never set foot at the church besides some, you know, yeah. radical thing. They're the Chester Thompsons, yeah. you know. Yeah. Could you give give these practitioners that are in apartment complexes, that are in prisons, that are in, you know, starting worship services in the VA hospital? You know, we've seen a lot of deliverances there. So when you talk about that demonic deliverance, I mean, when when you go yeah. into these places, like that's something you have to, you, you that's real. You know, you 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 gotta you gotta do that. Give us some encouragement. Give those people some encouragement that are, that are there. Maybe they're like, man, I'm just never gonna get anywhere. <laughs> you know, these people are so hard. Yeah. Just give us yeah. some encouragement. Okay, um, you know, one of the things when I think of 
the way Chester treated me is very similar to how Jesus treated the woman at the world, the Samaritan woman at the world. So what he didn't do, what Jesus didn't do, he didn't say, and of course you got the, a, a very big cultural context there with, you know, Samaritans hated Jews, blah, 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 they wouldn't talk to each other, you got all that, you know. But it's the issue of value and honor. So what Chester did to me, he valued who I was. He didn't preach to me. He didn't say, he, all he, you know, when he finally listened to my ridiculous testimony of what I thought I believed, you know, he just said, yeah, I know what you mean, man, you know, because he'd come out of a similar background as well, you know. And he said, you just need Jesus. That was all he said. And with the, if you study the Jesus at the, at the well with the woman, he never said to her, you know, you're lost. I'm the way, the truth, and the, and the life. You need, to, you need to believe in me. You need to listen to what i got to say because I am, etc." He didn't do any of that at all. The first thing he did was he asked her if she could give him a drink, which is really interesting when you think about it because all of a sudden, in a strange way, that gives her a sense of value that she can actually do something to help somebody. I'm starving. Could you, you know, I'm thirsty. <laughs> can you give me a drink? So that's a huge barrier breakdown right there. And I think that sometimes, oftentimes, that's something that we need to learn, especially if we're going into some radical cultural situations, such as prisons or whatever, you know, and vets who have been, think of it like vets, for instance, who have been damaged, PTSD and all that. So, gosh, their sense of value has been completely blown apart. So I think that one of the things that we need to do as leaders, as evangelists, ministers, you know, ministers of reconciliation. So this reconciliation, we immediately think, oh, well, it's, it's vertical, it's, you know, us and God, you know. Well, that, that, yeah, that's part of it. But first and foremost, a person needs to be reconciled in terms of how they're feeling about themselves, you know, which I think is what Jesus was doing with the woman at the well. She was most probably expecting that this guy, being a Jew, was going to tear her apart. And in fact, culturally speaking, if she had handed any other Jew uh, a cup of water, he would have thrown the cup aside and wouldn't even drink the water because it came from a Samaritan. That's how deep the cultural divide was in that, back then in that context. Jesus completely overstepped that, said, can you give me something to drink because I'm thirsty, you know. <laughs> and he was sorry, just took a sip of the water, you know. So that establishes something right there. So I, I would definitely look at that, at that whole thing, you know. He recognized how broken she was. I mean, what woman in their right mind wants to be married five times? So he recognized she's a broken woman. So she needs reconcil She needs to be reconciled with herself first of all before she before she could hear, you know, the truth of the gospel or the truth about who Jesus was. So he was he he did that. I think it's just incredibly astute and smart on Jesus's part, you know. And the other one, the great psalm of encouragement. 
to me is Psalm 139. So this is the one where, you know, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. But there's also these these uh, things in there that David says, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I lay my bed in hell, you're there. So this tells us something. God is with us and he is for us wherever we are all the time. So in terms of encouragement, you were telling me that some of your leaders and stuff, you know, they go into hellish places where you've got the demonic is, is active there. So be encouraged. Jesus is right there with you. He's right there with you. And so he's there in the hellish places. He's there in the spiritual places. He's there with us all the time. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We only see 180 degrees. He sees 360 degrees. He sits outside of time. And that's how he works. And he's the one. He's given us the Holy Spirit to blow wherever it, wherever he wills, you know. And I'm sure that sometimes when you're in those situations, you get a little worried about, what am I going to say? What, what am I going to say? And I think one of the things we have to do, be careful, and I often have to think this way for myself, is the things I'm going to say, they have to be representative of something that Jesus would say. Because Jesus gave us a model. He says, I only say the things I hear my heavenly Father saying. I only do the things that he does. So this requires, this is where humility comes in. And I, I think that sometimes we tend to think that because we're Christians and we come across broken people, people in broken situations, there is a tendency for us to look down on them as if they are something less. And that's why we must never forget our own testimonies because outside of Christ, we are, um, <laughs> I shouldn't be here. You know what I'm saying? I, mean, yeah, I should yeah. have flamed out a long time ago. You know, so it's by the grace of God that we're even having this this conversation. But I think we're we're in a critical time in the church, in, in especially in the church in America, Western culture, where we've been we've gotten so wealthy, we've gotten all the you know, we're so educated, we know so much stuff, but we lack in the character of God the revealed character of God. I could go on to a long thing about this, but I, but I would say, if you, look at, if you look at Exodus 34, verse 7, where Moses is he's saying, um, show me your glory, and God says, I can't do that. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. Okay, so he does that, and then you get a list of his attributes, of his characteristics. If you compare them with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, you'll see they're pretty much identical. So we know what God is like. We know what Jesus is like. And God wants us to just follow after his character. We're never going to be as intelligent as God, no matter how many PhDs we get. <laughs> it just ain't going to happen. Yeah. He's God, yeah. okay? <laughs> the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, and they that dwell therein. You know, But we can follow after his character. And I believe that in these kinds of ministries that are breaking the mold, 
That's what I'm sensing that what you guys are doing. You're breaking the mold, which is great. But I think what's what's going to be the deal breaker is the character of God has to be revealed. Mm. Good word. Good word. Caleb, if someone wanted to find out a little bit more about you, maybe uh, catch your book, the documentary, something like that, like how would how would they go about doing that? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. There's a website, louderthanrock.com. The book is available on Amazon.com. The movie is available on Amazon Prime. The movie is called Louder Than Rock, same title as the book. It's available on Amazon Prime. It's on YouTube. It's on, uh, what's the other one? Tubi and Plex. And now we're doing our best to get it into the cinemas, but it's available streaming. Yeah. Awesome. Caleb, thank you so much for your time. I certainly appreciate it. I mean, I, I, I would love to talk to you for another hour. <laughs> I would love it. Yeah. Well, I hope yeah. this is encouraging to you and, and your ministry, my friend. That's great. Yeah, it totally is. Thank you so much. Tell Ralph Moore I said hi. I will. I will definitely do that. Well, for those of you listening, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Only on a Sunday. I do hope that you've been encouraged by Caleb's story and uh, we'll continue reaching the unreachable. So thank you so much. You guys, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. God bless. Mm -hmm.